Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Jonathan Curiel and I'll be your moderator for today's program, which is the Israeli elections. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Let me introduce our distinguished speakers. To my far right, uh, we have Ravit Baer, the Deputy Counsel General for Israel to the Pacific Northwest. She's been a career diplomat since 2004 and heads the political and public diplomacy departments at the Israeli consulate in San Francisco. After her um, tour of duty here, she'll be returning to Israel this summer. To my immediate right is um, Alon Sakar, who has worked to advance Middle East peace under two U.S. administrations, and he served at the State Department of Near Eastern Affairs and at the U.S. Consulate in Jerusalem. With Senator George Mitchell, he co-authored Path to Peace, a brief history of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations and a way forward in the Middle East. Would you please welcome Deputy Counsel General Ravid Baer and Alon Sakar? And I'd like to start with uh, Ravid, please. Hi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming today. Um, so we had elections, which is always exciting time, and, and a lot of things are going on before and after. And interestingly enough, it's not really up in the media, whatever's going on right now, because this is our very hectic times um, after the elections and before the establishment of the government. So what I did want to start with is a little about the Israeli system, because it's so different from the American system, it's a, it needs a little clarifications. So unlike the American presidential system, our system is parliamentary, which essentially means it's more like a team game rather than a personal game, and then, um, which means that we have a lot, a lot of parties, and parties have to establish coalition. So in this last elections on April 9th, we had 46 parties running for elections. When all together, we only have 120 seats in the parliament. By the way, it's one of the smallest parliaments in the world. And essentially, each and every party can run. Um, and eventually, after the elections, we now have 11 parties represented in the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, which is a lot. So... The Israeli elections are, in a way, simpler than the American elections. The entire state is one, um, is one county for as far as election is concerned. So everyone pretty much votes the same way. We don't vote for a specific representative of a district. We vote for a party. We don't even vote for a specific person. We vote for a group of people that are a party, which means no one voted Benjamin Netanyahu they could vote for the Likud Barat party, which he is leading. So, um, so the elections are general. They are direct, which means we don't have an electoral college. Whatever you vote, this is, goes to, um, to, the, uh, to the parties directly. Uh, they are national. They happen one day throughout the country. They are proportional, of course. I mean... All the, we have about 68% um, voters' appearance, so out of that, it is just divided to 120 seats according to, uh, between the parties. They're equal, of course, and they are confidential. So the, election, the elections happened on April 9th, and the results are really interesting. They're interesting because it looks like we are getting back to what was happening 
25, 30 years ago. So essentially until the late 80s, early 90s, we had two large parties in our system, roughly representing the moderate right and the moderate left. Historically, it was the Labour and the Likud, but of course, names have changed. And then throughout the 90s, what we saw is fragmentation of the political system, rise of a lot of small parties. And then you saw uh, at a certain point the Likud and the Labour Party with very small numbers, 20-something each. So what does it mean? After the elections, you have to form a coalition government. So essentially what happens is that the large, usually the largest party or the one most likely to form coalition government is assigned by the president of Israel with the capability of, of establishing coalition government, which means this party, the, usually the largest party, but it's not necessarily that, now have to start coalition um, negotiations with the rest of the parties that entered the Knesset in order to create a group which is at least half, 60 plus one, a, major, a certain majority, okay? So 61 is the absolute minimum. Anything above that is, is a more stable coalition government. So this is, the, this is where we are standing right now. So elections happened. The two major parties actually got the exact same number of seats. The Likud party got 35 seats. Remember, they have to have a minimum of 61, so they're really far from 61 with only 35. And uh, Kaholavan also got 35 seats. So both parties have the same number. So you would ask yourself, how does the president choose which party should be assigned with the, with the duty of, of establishing coalition government? So the president will consult with the heads of all, all the political parties, and he will figure out who recommended, the, who got most recommendations. So after a week of consultation, the president decided that the most likely one to establish coalition government would be the Likud party, party headed by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and assigned him with that duty. So we are right now in the midst of crazy negotiations in Israel. You don't see it in the news. All these things are happening, you know, and there are so many speculations, more wild or less wild, some of them really wild, about what kind of coalition government is going to be established eventually. But one, one date you have to remember, the absolute final date to establish a government in Israel is May 28th. If it doesn't happen by May 28th, we go to elections, just to be aware. So I doubt if that will happen. Right now, each party is trying to gain something, and there are really hectic um, discussions and a lot of statements in the, in the news. Uh, but this is weird times also because it's during this time of the year when we have Holocaust Memorial Day, Memorial Day, and Independence Day that was yesterday. Happy birthday, Israel. We're 71. Um, and and um, it's going to be interesting. So essentially, when you establish coalition government, and I think I will stop with that because I don't want to be too... Um, what happens is that each party receives some files, this is how we call it, which essentially is ministerial positions. And each party wants the strongest and more influential um, uh, ministerial positions. Um, according to what's important to it, okay? So, um, for example, the ultra-Orthodox party, um, Agudat Israel, always wants health. 
because it's really important. They have, they have communities that are fairly poor and they have a lot of uh, kids and they need better health systems. So that's important to them. Other parties like Kulanu that are very interested in, in economy would probably demand the Ministry of Finance and on and on. And then it's really a negotiation. Who gets what? So um, we'll see eventually what kind of government we will have. And personally, as a representative of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I would love to know who will be the Minister of Foreign Affairs. <laughs> just to make, just to note that in the last almost three years, we actually did not have a minister. The prime minister took upon himself the position of the foreign minister. Yes. <laughs> and I'll stop here and be happy to answer any questions you might have later on. Th- th- thank, thank you, uh, Ravi. We'll undoubtedly have lots of questions, and I appreciate you explaining <laughs> the, the background and the, and the update that we needed. And now let's turn to Alon Sakar and, and to hear what he has to say. Sure. I'll, I'll keep my remarks a little brief. But, you know, in the United States, we tend to look at elections abroad and look at it through our perspective of how elections work and what issues are important. Um, and so, you know, having a State Department background and having worked um, on the Israel desk and on the Palestinian Affairs desk for, for quite a while, Obviously, one of the issues that is a focal point in the United States is what's the impact on the peace process of, of the Israeli elections. Um, and that's certainly a totally legitimate question to be asking. Um, and I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that question. Obviously, before the elections, uh, the prime minister had made some comments that are concerning to people who are in favor of the two-state solution, but obviously are encouraging to people who are in favor of a solution that is a bit less than the two-state solution. He had mentioned things like annexation of certain parts of the West Bank. Um, But the reason I mention this is because it highlights what a predicament the Netanyahu is currently in from an international perspective. On the one hand, he has, in terms of foreign policy, a more... uh, or domestic kind of policy with the Palestinians, a more right-wing coalition that he needs to embrace and to make sure they feel heard. Um, And on the other hand, he has actually made some very significant strides in Israel's relations with the Arab world, not just with (laughs) neighboring countries. Uh, Relations with Egypt are much improved over the last uh, handful of years, but also with a lot of the Gulf Arab states. So that's an example of the kind of balance he's going to have to do in these coalition negotiations. What can he promise uh, some of these other parties mostly to the right of him that are going to be coming in his coalition without sacrificing some of the gains that he's made uh, in relations with other countries in the Arab world. Uh, and like Ravit said, who knows what's going to come out of it. It's, it's, it's actually shocking how quiet it's been in the press and how little has leaked out, which I think means it's, it's a very serious negotiation. There's a lot. I Googled before coming here kind of to see what the latest news was, and I, couldn't, I could hardly find anything. Um, on what's the status of those talks, which is shocking. Um, and then also internally, looking aside from kind of the international relations uh, perspective, internally within Israel, the elections revealed uh, some very uh, big demographic shifts. Uh, on the one hand, you have a growing national religious community who are exercising their political influence, and you can see that 
in the way the elections are turning out. The Labour Party, which is generally, though obviously not exclusively, a more secular party, is kind of virtually on the margins now, uh, non-existent. Um, but you also see very low Arab turnout. Relative, it's been decreasing over the years, which can be a sign of systematic, you know, fatigue or uh, a view that maybe the elections won't necessarily help um, their position in the state. So there are there are just looking demographically internally within Israel, there are a lot of very interesting things that we can talk about in terms of the Israeli elections. One thing I'll note that's going to be an incredibly sticky issue is what about the ultra-Orthodox and the military? Because that indeed was something that caused... These elections were early. They occurred before they were supposed to be scheduled. And one of the issues that led to early elections was that issue. What about the ultra-Orthodox community serving in the military? For the most part, those communities want an exemption from the military. Rather, they want their studies, their yeshiva studies, to count as their service, basically. Um, whereas more secular parties on the left and the right uh, are not in favor of that. Um, one of the uh, right, wing, uh, right parties, Israel Beitenu and Avigdor Lieberman, who's a very staunch secularist, this is actually an issue that he has come out very strongly um, uh, he even left the coalition, which was one of the precipitators of the early election. He left Bibi's coalition because of this very issue. So as there, as uh, Netanyahu is now wheeling and dealing between the parties, he's got to figure out how he's going to manage people like Lieberman, who are staunch secularists on the right, who oppose these uh, exemptions from the military, they're air quotes because it's complicated. It involves the legal system and the Israeli constitution. Um, and what he's going to say to the Orthodox parties who want to pass a bill for formalizing the ability for, for, um, for the religious to not serve in the military. So like with the international politics, the domestic politics are also really interesting. So it'll be... Uh, It'll be fascinating to see what happens come May 28th. <laughs> uh, th th thank, thank you, Alon. Um, both, both your uh, introductory uh, comments are really helpful. Um, in some ways, a lot, you know, you, you, you talked about, Alan, about the, the, the U.S. view of the elections in Israel and, and what people would, would, might consider a kind of myopic view, like, you know, what, what, is, what is this in relation to a lot of things? But in some ways, was was the election of um, Netanyahu was seeming election was was it a was it a referendum on Netanyahu as much as it was a referendum on the two state solution, as much as it was a referendum on um, Netanyahu's relationship to Trump, as much as it was a referendum on a lot of different things. I mean, as as you both indicate, there's there was no one thing. There were a lot of things. But um, if you could just talk, if you, if you don't mind about the referendum, possible referendum on the two-state solution and whether that's still alive. I know your book with George Mitchell talks about the inevitability of that solution and how both Israel, both sides, as it were, will um, grow tired of the killing, grow tired of the finger-pointing, grow tired of all these things, and that a two-state solution will emerge. Is the two-state solution dead? Um, 
the book talks about the inevitability of kind of a separation, a more formalized separation between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And it talks about two states being more preferable to some kind of unilateralism, um, which I still think to be the, is the case. I think I don't think you can describe the Israeli elections as a referendum on the two-state solution because views change. It really depends on what's going on on the ground, how serious are the discussions, what is the view of the Palestinian partner. And I think some people who are opposed to some kind of diplomatic two-state solution right now, if the circumstances change, might not be opposed later. I think from my, from my perspective, it, you could in some way say that it is a referendum on uh, Netanyahu's relationship with the United States, which under the current president is obviously very strong, uh, with the move of the, well, the symbolic move of the embassy to Jerusalem, um, and the, um, uh, and the declaration of just, I think it was a, a week before the elections that the U.S. would recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. I mean, these are, these are things that, that are very important to most Israelis, even on the center left. Um, and so I think in some ways uh, you could see that as an affirmation of that relationship. It's obviously very important, and it's something that Netanyahu himself talked a lot about during the campaign. Uh, in fact, one question we have from an audience um, member is what, are, what, are, what about uh, Netanyahu's current coalition and their stance on the uh, potential for a two-state agreement? Is, is, are there clear indications, or is it really is he is it really kind of malleability as it were? Well, the current coalition is is obviously going to change. At least one party actually didn't make it into the um, into the Knesset. Party that two pretty important ministers, a minister of justice and minister of education, are actually going to be out of the Knesset, which is which was very surprising and interesting. Uh, the current coalition and most likely the next coalition tend to be more on the right map. And there are voices within it, even though the official position of the government is pro two-state solution, there are voices within it that are not supportive of the two-state solutions. So the thing is, in the last two years, um, we had a wonderful administration towards Israel in Washington that did two very important moves for the state of Israel and for most people in Israel. First of all, they recognized Israel as the capital, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moved the American embassy into Jerusalem. So it really did not change realities on the ground, if we are honest, honest, but at least it made a statement about the importance of Jerusalem for the state of Israel and the fact, the actual fact that it is the capital of Israel. And the second thing is the statement about the Golan Heights. So the Golan Heights, up until up until the end, 2010, I want to say, was for negotiation on the table. And it was negotiated by previous prime ministers with the Assad regime. Now, the idea that we actually negotiated that is, is, is quite unbelievable at the moment for anyone in Israel, because I don't know if how many of you visited the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights are physical heights. They are overlooking all our villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Before we had, before we took over the Golan Heights, this was a wonderful outpost for Syrian forces to just fire on our villages. And we have a whole generation of kids that grew up being bulleted by, by, by Syrian military um, from the Golan Heights. So right now, just the idea of that being held by all the rebellion sects in, 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 the, in, in Syria would be 
actually a frightening thought. So, and, and really, there aren't any, we don't have, um, there are very few inhabitants over there at the moment um, um, from, from Syria. We have a small um, Druze community in the Golan Heights, which essentially would be happy to stay as part of Israel, even though they have different statements for more like family reasons. Um, and, and it, and it doesn't make sense. And, and Syria today is really fragmented country. It will never remain. It will never go back to being Syria, the state. Something else will be formed out of that. So it just makes sense for the Golan Heights to stay uh, with Israel. So well, with both those things, um, the elections, I can say, I mean, it's interesting what you said before about the elections being around uh, the relations between U.S. and Israel. Personally, I didn't think that was the major topic. I did think there was a lot of personal issues in those elections, and I felt um, that a lot of time the discussion wasn't very much about um, essence, but a lot about personality and a lot about um, really personal issues. Uh, so you had Benjamin Netanyahu leading the Likud. There was a lot of discussions about him as a leader, and you cannot take it away from him. He has amazing achievements. Israel has never been more safe, more economically prosperous. I mean, we went through the 2008 uh, economic crisis almost unharmed, um, very stable, and, um, and international relations is pretty much flourishing, especially in the Middle East, which is quite, quite amazing. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, a party led by three ex-generals, uh, actually three chief of staffs, uh, very strong, very um, interesting and respected people in the community. So, And there were a lot of other parties with, led by strong people that had um, their appeal to some extent. So I thought it was more of a personal thing. I honestly, very, very honestly say I don't think the Palestinian issue was high on the agenda because the differences between the two major parties are not huge um, in that sense. Uh, but more like um, issues of state and religion um, and economics and, and social gaps took a lot of, uh, of the forefront in the discussion. Uh, we, we want to remind our listening audience that this is a Commonwealth Club program called the Israeli Elections. Our speakers are Ravid Baer, Deputy Counsel General for Israel to the, to the Pacific Northwest, and um, Alon Sakar, co-author with Senator George Mitchell of Path to Peace. I th- I, interesting that you talk about the the, the um, issues that were prominent among Israel, the Israeli electorate, and Alan, you talked about the perception here in the United States, and um, I think the perception was that the Palestinian issue was a, was a big issue, and in fact, we have more questions from the audience about, about that. Um, one says um, uh, that that Abbas uh, was was offered um, 110% of territory and said no, uh, according to this questioner. Um, what uh, So what can be negotiated? Aren't negotiations a ritual to placate the West? And then another question about um, Israel as a nation state of the Jewish people. Where, what is the st- status of Palestinians in the state? I know there's a two slightly, um, you know, uh, off, offsetting questions, but maybe you could address one of them. Um, like Ravid said, I don't think the Palestinian issue was at the forefront and the difference between um, uh the party had by, uh, led by Benny Gantz, which was one of the generals, and 
uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on the peace process was you could hardly really tell the difference, um, except towards the very end when the Prime Minister made some comments to appease, which I mentioned before about annexing some of the West Bank. But, you know, the statement that the President Abbas was offered 110%, that's just, that is incorrect. Um, uh, I, this is a forum about the Israeli elections, but I'm, if there are lots of questions about kind of the negotiations, I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more. Um, but if anything, when, when thinking about the Palestinian issue, I think we're really in a holding pattern. There's a lot of transition happening on the Palestinian side right now that I think the Israelis are looking at and are, are waiting to see what happens. Um, of course, there's the divide between Hamas and the PA in Gaza and the West Bank, but also there's going to be succession soon. President Abbas is old and he's not in the best of health. And right now he's got a, a very authoritarian rule over the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And when he goes, there's going to be a fight over who replaces him. And that's not going to look pretty. And that's not the ideal situation to enter into a uh, an agreement that's going to be incredibly controversial and that you need you cannot have a crisis of leadership at the moment you're trying to sell uh, a peace agreement to your people. And so I think for now, at least what the I, even the current administration and I think most of the international community, what they're looking for is to the extent possible kind of holding steady on the status quo. What's said in politics and what people promise and what kind of PR is out there is one thing, but what actually is happening on the ground, I think, is something else. And for the most part, there's a tremendous amount of skepticism about whether there can still be a two-state solution or whether um, there will ever be a political agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. But by and large, the terms of that kind of agreement are still still able to be pursued if the conditions are right to pursue them. Um, and what was the, the second question? Oh, the question was, was about uh, pal Palestinian um, status in, in a state that declares itself the Jew state of the Jewish people. Okay. So um, just to make like some terms a little more yeah. clear, um, the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are not Israeli citizens. This law has nothing to do with them. Um, they're just not citizens of all residents of the state of Israel, and it really does not apply to them. Uh, the question was always about the Arab Israelis, the Arabs that are Israeli citizens, which is about, give or take, 20% 20, 20 of the Israeli population. Um, so the nation state law, and I'm not going to go into each, uh, each paragraph of, of, that, of that law, is one of, we don't have an official uh, constitution. What we do have is a list of fundamental laws that kind of state all the basic that needs to be in a constitution, with the elections, the status of the president, and on and on. So this is part of this codex. And it's essentially more of a declarative law. It still doesn't have really uh, an official um, implications, as far as I know. Uh, and it talks mostly about how do we, as the state of Israel, see ourselves. How do we define ourselves? And the controversy was that the nation state law says that the state of Israel is the state of the Jewish people, which is, by the way, was said also in the Declaration of Independence, when the idea was really that the state of Israel is the Jewish people 
does not have a state of, of its own, did not have a state of its own. And for 2,000 of years, that cost us a lot throughout history in different time and places in the world. And of course, when the worst phenomena was the Holocaust that happened um, in the early 40s. When the state of Israel was established, the idea was we're going to have a state for the Jewish people. And this state has to be majority Jewish. And it has to have an, a Jewish identity. And it has to be a refuge for the Jewish people. And in a way, this is what the nation state law had came to, to say to the world. This is a Jewish state. It does not mean that we're taking rights out of the non-Jewish people that live in Israel. But it does mean that, they, that if you're a Jew, you can come to Israel. This is your safe haven. So there are controversies around certain elements in the nation state law. But as far as I know, till now, there is really no difference a day before, a day after in the status of anyone that is not Jewish in Israel. It's more of a declarative um, law about how do we see ourselves. There was, one, there was one discussion about the status of Arabic as, a, as an official language in Israel. And then apparently it never really was an official um, language in Israel, but it's always been treated the way, this way. And that really hasn't changed. Okay? So all signs are both in Arabic and in Hebrew and in Arabic. Um, and all text in all the official government offices are translated into Arabic. So that really, really hasn't changed. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. We have a question from the audience about uh, um, what, is, what is the Israeli view of the increasingly overt anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic expressions of the American left, including members of Congress? And, and before you answer, I just want to say that, that when, whenever one reads an article having to do with Israel, for example, I'm holding one from New York Times about the Israeli-Gaza um, clashes, and here's one from the Israeli paper Haaretz, which is, I know, left-leaning about the Israeli elections. And if you go to those articles... You read the articles, which are a substantial number of words, maybe say seven, seven hundred to a thousand, and then the comments are about ten million, and and they're 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 all they're all back and forth, and they're they're all very entrenched in people's positions, and it gives it gives one pause about well, how can if if people are arguing this way in the comment section of the New York Times on Haaretz, um, how can there possibly be room for agreement? Um, you know, among Israelis and Palestinians, and even within Israel, you sort of want to throw up your hands and say enough is enough. So um, anyway, the, that's 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 what I'd like to ask. Yeah. I mean, that's what this person would like to ask. What about the increasingly um, to this person um, anti-Israel and anti-Semitic? Now, there are people who will say, well, no, these are legitimate expressions and things that have not been voiced in the media. So I'll just leave it at that for now. So maybe I'll say two things. First, peace you make with your enemies. Um, so eventually, uh, in the bottom line, you have to sit down and you have to make the discussion and make it work. Um, and we did it in the past. We did it with Egypt. We did it with Jordan, which we had terrible wars with. And I should know my father was a um, 
a captive in the Egyptian uh, by the Egyptian army in 1973. So you you do peace with your enemies. You don't do peace with your friends. And I think um, that eventually, when we when leadership will be ready on both sides. Uh, and, and as you well know, the Palestinians have been reluctant to sit to the negotiation table in the last six years. Um, but when that will be a possibility, eventually they will reach some sort of so, some sort of an agreement with direct negotiation. So this is for the question about who are you going to talk to? Uh, and maybe Mahmoud Abbas is not the right person. Maybe really he is old and not and weak and 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 it's not the right person to make those decisions as for the anti-semitism um you know we're jews we know it's there <laughs> uh it's been there for the last two thousand years it's not going anywhere it has different expressions with different communities in different times and different places um and we are very sensitive to that and we understand that um and and it's our duty to voice against that and this is what we do and we try to educate people and to pass the messages against anti-semitism and as the state of israel we look from afar to phenomena all over uh, the political map not necessarily political uh, expressions of of anti-semitism um but you asked a little about about the uh, the the difference between Um, legitimate criticism of the state of Israel and where does it pass and become actual anti-Semitism expressions. Um, and, and for me, if you'll, if you'll ask me as a representative of Israel, I think the point where you undermine the right of the Jewish people for self-determination, this is where this is no longer a legitimate criticism. And unfortunately, this is extremely widespread. The, 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 and to talk about Zionism, and Zionism, it's actually a national movement of the Jewish people. Prabhupada's saying we have a right for self-determination and to be, to, to be in, our, in our homeland in the state of Israel. That's what Zionism is. And Zionism, the minute it becomes this terrible word, word and, and saying that the Jewish people is just a religion, they don't have a right for self-determination, this is where I think anti-Semitism kicks in. I'll add, um, I mean, anti-Semitism exists both on the right and on the left of the political <clears throat> spectrum in the U.S. I think growing, anti-Sem- uh, sorry, um, growing anti-Israel sentiment um, in, in more kind of left-wing politics in the U.S., um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that over the last... 10 years, really, if not maybe a little less, it, it has been made into a political issue. Whereas for, for decades, the Jewish community in, in the United States and pro-Israel supporters in the United States worked very hard to try and make pro-Israel supporters, support of Israel, not a Republican or a, Democrat is, a Democratic issue. They tried to make it a universal issue. Um, and I think over the last decade, there has been... steps taken that have to uh, to make the issue more partisan um more overtly partisan and i also think you know for a lot of there's a, a so much misunderstanding about israel about the conflict about the israeli-palestinian conflict on the right on the left like what ravit was saying conflating zionism with a you know Um, certain politicians in Israel, but not necessarily other politicians in Israel. Um, 
and what you see on college campuses can be distressing at times. But I think it's also really important to recognize that the Israel today, that younger generation, not just American Jews, but Americans see is not the Israel of the uh, 1970s and the 1960s, which appeared more secular, more uh, uh, open as a society, um, even though you cannot compare uh, Israeli society to where it is in the region in terms of um, certain aspects of, of progressive values. But I think people looking at the politics of Israel and also looking at the politics of the United States, we see it, people who are um, uh, more progressive, people who are more concerned about civil rights and about inclusion. Um, we look around and it's concerning. And I look at Israel. My brother lives in Israel um, with his three kids and his family. Um, and it concerns me about some of the trends that are occurring there and in Israeli politics. There, what happened with the, the Jewish nation state law, um, I'm not an expert about the specifics of the law, but it did impact the Arab community there. There are very prominent Arab Israelis who took great offense to that law and really saw it as an affirmation that they are not equals. They might be equal under the law, they might have the same exact civil rights, but they are viewed differently. They are treated differently. There is this perception that they are another. And the, the, the prime minister did make a comment um, uh, just before the elections in response to somebody's comment. The, the, somebody had commented uh, that Israel was a state for all its citizens. And the prime minister responded something like, it's not. It's the state of the Jewish people. Obviously, he didn't mean legally and formally, but he he was talking about kind of how what is the identity of the country? And when you have 20 percent of the people who who have struggled to fit in and have been finding their way to fit in the, you know, air participation in the economy um, in uh, the tech sector, all of that is increasing. Um, but the struggle to kind of fit in psychologically into the system, into the state, when you have something like the nation state law come out right before an election, that has the impact of exclusion, not inclusion. And we see those same things in the U.S. that are concerning, right? So people on the left, Democrats in the U.S., and I am uh, one of those, you know, I look at what's happening and it's concerning to me what's happening in terms of LGBT rights, what's happening in terms of uh, no inclusivity. And all, these are similar things. And we are seeing that also in Israel. So it's concerning. And so, unfortunately, that gets conflated with kind of really um, uh, kind of um, unfair anti-Israel criticism that does sometimes... Uh, venture into anti-Semitism. Um, but there, you know, there is a very large contingency, I think, of uh, progressive Americans, more liberal Americans that are concerned about kind of the fate of that, of what, the politics in Israel, much like they're concerned about what's happening in the politics in the United States. Um, but given how tense the conflict is between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you know, it can be very convenient to point to the, you know, the most extreme on the left 
and to kind of paint with really broad strokes and paint a whole party that way, for example. But, you know, most of you uh, in this room know much better than me, but on the right, there is also a very long history of anti-Semitism and um, criticism of Israel. I mean, just look at the first President Bush and his Secretary of State and how he was viewed, you know, from the from the more pro-Israel community in the United States as being very harsh of Israel. Um, James Baker being uh, uh, described as an anti-Semite. And so it goes through periods, it flows with politics. And I think for the most part, the vast majority of Americans on the left and the right still have generally favorable views of Israel, respect for its democracy, respect for what the state has accomplished, but also concern with where things are going and what's going to be the future of that state. Uh, th thank you. We want to remind our listening audience that this is a Commonwealth Club program called the Israeli Elections. Our speakers are Ravid Baer, Deputy General Counsel for Israel to the Pacific Northwest, and Alon Sakar, co-author with Senator George Mitchell of Path to Peace. A Path to Peace. Um, Alon, I, I was I was reading your book on on the internet, um, and which you can read for free, at least the first oh. thirty or so pages. <laughs> That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> As an author myself. <laughs> That's uh, Celia Menchel saying that is a really good read. And you can buy it at your local bookstore. Um, I, I will ag agree with that one uh, from from what I've read. But the the introduction of your book talks about uh, it begins with an anecdote, and you talk about how uh, U.S. president um, was um, um, in a sense deciding for Israel. This is what's going to happen. Here's what's here's what you're going to do. And it seemed like you were ripping the the anecdote from the from current history, but in fact, uh, the the president or the prime minister there was Menachem Begin, um, and the president was Ronald Reagan. Am I correct with that? Yep, yep, that's right. Uh, and and you used the anecdote. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but you used the anecdote as as a an example of how um, the the kind of um, the negotiations and the impositions that happen and the politics that happen um, um, have happened for decades. And um, when I was reading that, I thought, wow, okay, well, um, things have changed for the better and maybe for the worse. Um, I, I hope you don't mind if you can talk about both, whether for the better and for the worse, because what we have here in some ways, the Israel elections, um, I, I, th I think this was correct. We you had a lot of billboards with uh, Netanyahu with Donald Trump. Is that correct? I mean, so in other words, Trump was, uh, President Trump was, was, you know, a factor, an X factor in, in the election, if I'm not mistaken. I wasn't in Israel. Uh, I was there for like a week during the elections. I don't remember seeing actually a single billboard of Donald Trump, but I wouldn't be surprised if you told me. Yeah. In March. In March. Um, was that, did you want me to? Oh, yeah. So, so, <laughs> sorry. So, right. So we have, so can you, can you talk about the, the kind of give and take that's happened uh, between the U.S. administrations and, and Israeli prime ministers um, that, in a sense, dictate what happens in Israel? Well, I don't, I mean, there's always been some tension between the American president and a sitting Israeli prime minister. It's happened, I think, without fail with every single sitting U.S. president, every single Israeli prime minister. Um, right now, there are surely disagreements. Um, I think it's less overt in the media for other political reasons. But um, back in Israel's infancy, it was just a different relationship. There was more of a dependency 
um, on uh, the outside. Um, there was more of um, the sense that Israel um, uh, was incredibly vulnerable and needed to be, you know, staunchly uh, allied and protected, which gave, you know, a U.S. president a lot of leverage, but also could aggravate a U.S. president when the Israelis did what they state was established to do and was have, you know, their own views of how things should work. Um, yeah, or misbehaved from their perspective. <laughs> um, and the the anecdote with Ronald Reagan was... Uh, in the 80s, Ronald Reagan had a peace plan, and it was for uh, Palestinian autonomy in parts of the West Bank under Jordanian rule, which Menachem Begin flat out rejected, said was the worst day of his life. He couldn't believe the uh, how the president had approached the issue and you know stabbed him in the back. And now any Israeli politician, if they could go back in time and implement that deal that would be the deal now it's you know for complicated reasons it's not even a remote possibility but um uh but now israel is from every perspective economically militarily it's it's a incredibly strong state its gdp um rivals europe not the middle east its defense industry it ranks in the top four or five in the world um, and it has independent relationships with some of the largest country in the world that don't necessarily rely on, um, you know, other countries, whether it's uh, the U.S. or in Europe, to kind of um, foster those relationships. So, um, you know, on the one hand, that's 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 great, right? Um, obviously. Uh, uh, for Israel to have that kind of security and that kind of uh, self-determination and ability to really kind of be influential is phenomenal. But on the other hand, and you know, it also does lead many Israelis to the view that they don't, there is no, they don't need to necessarily enter into an agreement with the Palestinians. That that's not something that they need to be worried about. Uh, the sky hasn't fallen, and they don't have a, they don't have a peace agreement now, and the sky hasn't fallen. And to some degree, they're right, you know, but it, that's why it's not such a factor in the elections, because there are other issues that are more prominent for them. But in, from my perspective, there's only so long that you can have this kind of ethnic conflict go on without bubbling over. Now you have not just I do think there's a trend among Israeli Arabs to feel kind of a little more outsiders in the state. There was a drop in their participation in the recent election. Um, but then you also look at West Bank Palestinians, which, as Ravit said, are not Israeli citizens, um, do not have the right to vote. But a, a Palestinian that's under the age of 18 right now has no memory of the first intifada or of what kind of what that violence leads to. And the unemployment rates are incredibly high. And you know, things are just not working for them. The political system isn't working. And at some point, I'm afraid like that, that will bubble over again. And in a way that's that when you have that mixed with kind of increasing um, uh, kind of the, with the regional issues the way they are today, I think I think it's going to be a, re a real problem. And it's not external factors that are going to force Israeli to the peace table 
uh, and the Palestinians to the peace table and to make an agreement, that was never going to be the case. Um, but it's going to be more internal problems. And that's, that's unfortunate because what that means is things get worse before they get better. Maybe I should add something to, to a point that you raised. We've been experiencing since 2011 a regional chaos that it's really hard to explain how wide it is. Um, on our borders, we have three failed region states. And, and if you look you know, further, we have six failed states in our region. Which is, you have Syria, you have Iraq, you have um, Libya, you have Afghanistan, you have Yemen, and, and partially Lebanon, partially the Sinai Pen- Peninsula, all these regions. And, and for people to understand what a failed state is, it means that there is no actual government that is providing the minimum needs of its people, including health. We are seeing plagues in Syria, actual plagues coming back. Um, and this, all of that is happening around us, and you see all these sects within those communities killing one another all the time. So for years, we were the big Satan. We were a small Satan. The U.S. was the large Satan, so it was, it was nice. Um, but right now, you realize it's just not about Israel. There's, I mean, the Middle East was divided between France and England, you know, a hundred years ago with one of the most um, problematic, let's say, colonial agreement, the Sykes-Picot. And, and we're seeing the results up until today. And we're seeing communities that maybe should have never been together um, in, inside those countries. And they are really killing one another. And for all of that, the state of Israel right now is expected to sign an agreement with Arab people. And we're not seeing a very good example of Arab people creating a vibrant, prosperous democracies that are stable in our region. So it doesn't mean that we should not aspire for peace. And I think for the most part, most Israelis really, really want peace. It's part of our culture to sing about peace, to talk about peace. But right now, when you look around in our region, it really is kind of frightening, the idea of creating another Arab state that most likely will not be democratic because there is no example, historic example of an Arab democracy. There's no, never been such a thing, at least. Um, and we know that the Palestinian Authority is extremely, extremely corrupt. And that's not a big secret. Everyone kind of knows that. Uh, and corruption leads to internal instability, as we saw around our region. And, and when you see other movements, Islamic radical movements within our region that are interested in destabilizing the situation, then there isn't, then that kind, just, I'm just trying to explain why there isn't a huge enthusiasm at the moment of signing an agreement that will establish a Palestinian um, state. So we are talking about some kind of solutions like median solutions and, and, and we're trying to explain why the security issue is so important with any future Palestinian state. Um, some countries are more willing to listen, some are less. Actually, the, if you ask a lot of the uh, Israeli Arabs, they will not like to join Palestinian state. That is, uh, it's true. We, 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 for those for, for, for those of you listening, uh, we have a, a. Not only that, even in Gaza, there are, there are movements already. You hear them. People, besides the rebellion and the clashes they had with the government, 
you see that there are movements of people saying enough is enough. We want to live. We don't need all that stuff. Okay. Uh, okay. Same is like in other countries all over. For, for, for those listening on, on, the, on the Internet, um, we have an audience member saying that um, uh, there are a lot of uh, um, Palestinians, uh, Israeli and Palestinians, who, are, who, who say they want stability, enough is enough. Um, you talk about corruption. I think that's, that's um, in the Palestinian Authority. I think it's a good point. It's one of the many, many, many issues um, that, that um, you know, it'd be good to kind of know, know more about. Um, Celia Menchel has, has her microphone now. Um, are you passing it to? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the, the, these, these are good points. Um, uh, I, I want to raise another point. Um, people, you know, there was, there was so much interest in the Israeli elections. That's what we're here to talk about um, for a lot of reasons. One, we, we're at a real crossroads, of, I, you know, I believe, in the Middle East. Uh, Netanyahu, his, his personality and his previous actions were, you know, really important. They, they raised a lot of um, interest. Um, but, but also um, the ongoing um, uh, protests on, on the Gaza border have, have raised a lot of interest. Um, and, of course, the Israeli-Gaza clashes that, that have happened. Um, correspondingly, there's something happening uh, this, this month, uh, Eurovision is happening in Tel Aviv. And for a lot of people who don't follow, who don't follow the Middle East, and I'm talking about, I guess, average Americans, as it were, they hear about Eurovision, they realize, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. Oh, I see that an Israeli won last year, but then there's all this controversy now, but now I'm learning about um, the BDS movement. And so all these things seem to be related. Um, and then, um, you know, they impact people's perception of what's happening on the ground. Um, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to talk about Eurovision unless you, unless you really want to. We could. I would love to. <laughs> Personally, I would love to do a whole program about Eurovision, Celia. <laughs> it's the best way to learn European politics. Totally, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, it's the best way to kind of understand people who are not elected leaders. Uh, I think a lot of people know about the Israeli champion, even though I don't personally. But but I, I wonder I wonder if you can talk about just the um, the the kind of um, the complicated mix the complicated mix between um, uh, with, with the, mil- the military uh, clashes that are often happening and the political realities, but also the cultural realities that impose themselves and remind people, oh right, this is what's happening culturally in Israel. They have singers, and then in the West Bank they actually have writers, um, and they have this and that. I mean, in a sense, isn't isn't all this kind of real? You're talking about this, the real human, basic, everyday level. Isn't that one of the one of the things that gets lost in 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 all of this? I, I mean, it's it's the only thing I can say is it's it's a land of contradictions, I, <laughs> which I don't think is surprising to anybody that's here. But yeah, the Eurovision will be in, in Tel Aviv, which is an incredibly uh, progressive, open and liberal city. Um, I lived there for two years. Um, but if if the Israeli elections taught us anything is also that Tel Aviv is a bubble within Israel. It voted completely differently than the rest of the country did. Um, if only Tel Aviv's votes were counted, the government would be a very progressive left-wing um, government. So that is what will be seen by the visitors and the guests. And, and it's like going to San Francisco in, in instead of Washington, D.C. these days. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you know, my my brother lives in Ashdod, which is a city that's on the coast, not far from the Gaza Strip, and has three young kids all under the age of seven. And last week they spent days in their in their bomb shelter 
right? As the Eurovision contest is being, uh, the stages are being set up and the plans are being made, you know, 25 miles to the north in Tel Aviv. So everything's kind of a, a, a contradiction there. And in a lot of ways, things like the Eurovision are incredibly important because they do help bring um, populations together on a civil-to-civil basis. Um, uh, but I will say they those kinds of events do get a lot of attention politically because of like BDS and things like that. Um, but that that's not a movement that's had a tremendous amount of success. Uh, if anything, this kind of shows that it's not exactly having the kind of success that its proponents wish that it had. Um, it's more of kind of a, uh, a fear that a lot of Israelis and people who support Israel in the United States have of what can become if, if a movement like that be- gets out of control. Uh, Ravit, do you want to... Just, uh, I guess we have one minute, so I'll say... Um... It's interesting for me to watch the American news about Israel, because if you look at that, if I would only refer to Israel according to what I see in the American news, that's a pretty frightening and depressing place to be. Um, Of course, when you live in Israel, that's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different story. It's a functioning country with culture and art and whatever, which is actually pretty... um, um, pretty impressive. I mean, the Israeli culture and art and capabilities are quite um, renowned in the world, whether it's films that have you know, been candidate, Oscar candidates and, and dance and music and whatever. And, and, um, and the world is in Israel is, and, and the life in Israel are so normal. You know, it's not like people wake up every day and thinking about the conflict and thinking about Iran and thinking about the Palestinians. Maybe they do, but for the most part, we just live our life and we have normal life. This is why people actually like and enjoy living in Israel. And this is why every time there's a survey about the level of happiness in the world, Israel is always in the top 10. Believe it or not, but out of 100 states in the world, Israel is in the, top, in the top 10 of level of happiness of its citizens because we have a really good welfare system and a very good education system and a very good health system, public health system. And, and this influences people. So it, Israel is a great country with a big, big problem. <laughs> um, I'm tempted to leave it there. Do we have uh, time for one more question there, Sully? Yeah. Um, so we do we do have time for one more question. Um, two more questions. Okay, great. Um, the, the, um, we're going to be missing uh, Alon in, in a few minutes here, yeah. so may, maybe I'll ask if, if you want to add any um, fi- final thoughts. No, it's okay. You. We can do a couple more questions. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, so um, some of the some of the questions are, are are very specific about the religious uh, party that, that you men- mentioned uh, and and. Um, uh, and one is a, you know, kind of a, a basic question. Why don't the religious volunteers in the army, uh, uh, why don't the religious volunteer in the army as cooks or as uh, medical help, et cetera, um, if they're opposed to violence? And I know, Alon, you, talk, you talked about, um, you know, studying the yeshiva and how that, that occupies a lot of their time. But is, do you see a, a, um, a point where there really will be a fundamental change now where the Orthodox will have to not only participate in the military, but maybe do other, other things? 
And maybe to be realistic, for, yeah. <laughs> we've been talking about ultra-Orthodox service in the military since 1948. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I just think 71 years are a lot of time. Um, and, and I don't think the issue with them is, is necessarily pacifism. Uh, it's more of their belief that in order to, to maintain Jewish continuancy, there has to be Jewish learning, very strong Jewish learning. Uh, and if you go to the military, you kind of stop that in a very important age, the age of 18. This is the age that we are drafted. And also another issue that is um, problematic for them is that they like to stay within their groups, within their communities. And they are a little worried what will happen to a young, impressionable uh, 18-year-old if he goes to this secular environment, which is the military. So they have those um, two issues in regards to uh, the military service. I have to say we have seen some change in the last 10 years, and you see a lot more ultra-Orthodox people joining the military in different uh, capacities and programs. It's still not ma mandatory. It's volunteer basis. Uh, it is growing. I can't say it's still extremely widespread, but it's happening. Um, I doubt if we're going to see um, ultra-Orthodox military service anytime soon. I honestly think the biggest discussion is not the military service, but more about their participation in the economic world of the state of Israel um, and, and their um, being part of the education system that will allow them to become a more beneficial um, citizens in the economy. One more. Yeah. Um well, I mean, one of the things you talk about how the American media and the perception of Israel, and one of the, one of the um, stories that came up constantly was the question of whether uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu would be indicted for corruption, and that was uh, hanging in the air. Um, it seemed. It seemed. Um, it's still hanging in the air. Is isn't that correct? So let's 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 look ahead and say he does form a coalition. Would he, would formal charges? in a sense, interrupt the coalition, any coalition, or would he, despite that, be able to continue as prime minister? Well, I can give you just the legal perspective of that, um, not necessarily comment on the topic itself. So according to the laws in Israel, um, if a prime minister is indicted, and we are right now in a situation where the legal advisor to the government, who is the only one authorized to indict the prime minister, um, said that he intends to indict the prime minister after a hearing. So the hearing hasn't been held yet. It is scheduled to sometimes in June, as far as I understand, after the establishment of the government. Um, and after a hearing, he will make his final decision whether to indict or not. Which he will most, most probably will indict, even though, you know, anything can happen. Um, indictment does not necessarily mean that the prime minister has to resign. Only a final, um, a final verdict um, will, will determine that, which means final after appeal process. And that can take years in the Israeli system. So pretty much, you know, the government will end its term by then. Um, but what can happen is, and it happened in the past, um, that the Supreme Court will interfere. And the Supreme Court will determine that in a situation where, is, where the prime minister is under indictment, it is against constitutional principles to continue being the prime minister and then kind of force him to resign. And that had happened in the past, not with a prime minister, but with a minister. So these are like 
your guess is good as mine. He may choose to resign. He may, maybe his coalition partners will force him to resign, maybe his own party, and maybe none of that will happen and he will finish his term. So, it, you know, anyone's guess. Uh, that's a good point to leave on, I think, the question of uh, question. Uh, we want to thank, um, really thank Ravid Baer, Deputy Gen- Council General for Israel to the Pacific Northwest, um, Alon Sakar, co-author with Senator George, George Mitchell of A Path to Peace. We also want to thank our audiences here and those listening to the recording on the, on the Internet. I'm Jonathan Curiel, your moderator for today's program, The Israeli Elections. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 113 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. <laughs>